Hi, you are listening to Mobile Couch, and this is a show where we talk about mobile development. This show is hosted by Ben Trengrove. Hello. It sounds so short now. I know. It just it feels wrong. And myself, Jelly, a.k.a. Daniel Farrelly. And uh, this is episode number 65. And it's supported by our amazing patrons over at Patreon, who are amazing. I think I already said that. You are amazing. You are amazing. And we have follow-up. Our first bit of follow-up comes from Hunter, who emailed us to uh, in regards to the show we did about analytics, episode 24, asking about privacy policies. And specifically, uh, what he asked was, when you guys add analytics libraries to apps, do you also include a privacy policy and or the ability for the user to opt out? Um, most of the time, yeah. Definitely always have included a privacy policy, but it's mainly because I'm working with, like, I don't do my own apps, so I work mm. with big companies, and they already have one. Yeah. So they kind of just put it in. Um, and then as for opting out, I've done both. So some clients want the ability to opt out and others don't. Well, if you're collecting stuff that is personally identifiable, then you have to have an opt-in or an opt-out. Right. At least by, um, I'm pretty sure by Australian law. I don't know if it's an app store rule. And if it's just like usage, then most of the apps I have don't have an opt-out. So I have looked at the app store review guidelines. And in fact, Hunter actually pointed them out saying that, you know, that they kind of state what's allowed. They're not quite as uh, strict as you might think. They do mention a couple of times privacy policies and when an app should, you know, must include one uh, as far as the app store is concerned. So one of those is that if you're sharing or transmitting or collecting personal information from a minor, you have to comply with specific privacy statutes in regards to like, you know, children's privacy and you have to include a privacy policy. The other point, which is 17.5, says that you have to include a privacy policy if you include account registration or accessing you know, a user's existing account, which might mean that if you have like a if you have an online service, then you and you have the user login in order to use it, then you have to include a privacy policy because obviously once you get to that point, you're actually you know collecting user data because you have their email address or the user account details, so then you have to use you have to include it. But overall, it's not really that strict. It's like most of the stuff is like if you uh, want to include very kind of personal information, uh, name, address, email, locations, photos, videos, drawings, ability to chat, any personal data uh, about the person. Um, anything that's you know a persistent identifier, that sort of stuff. That's you know that's actually personalized information. But overall, just using thing for things like analytics, it's it. We talked about we talked about in that episode how you don't really want to be collecting that information if you really if you don't really need it. As an example, one of the things that the analytics is uh, that I'm using is tracking is how people are sharing uh, their gifts in gift wrapped. So I, you know, with with that, I could, for instance, I could log the the like the file name, which kind of could be used to personal, you know, to identify a person if I, you know, logged enough and logged them according to you know a particular user. 
that said, it doesn't really help me very much. Everybody's going to have different file names. They don't necessarily mean anything insofar as like how are people sharing. I'd be more interested in like uh, how are they share? Are they sharing URLs or are they sharing images? Are they sharing via the you know copy to the clipboard or are they sharing via some other means? So what I do actually track is things like are they using the the this? Uh, it's got shortcuts for copy and paste in the app. But then I've also got uh, it pops up a um, share sheet, you know those mm. things. So I, you know, those things are more interesting to me to figure out whether or not people are using those, relying on those. Uh, are people sharing the image? Are people sharing the URL? That sort of thing, and finding out how many people are sharing a specific thing because that can actually feed back into how I'm, you know, how I'm working that, and it's a core piece of the app. So learning how to make that better, faster, easier for people to use is kind of a bonus, would be, you know, would be a good thing. But I don't need to share any, like I don't need any personal information in order to make that happen. So I choose not to and therefore don't necessarily need privacy policy unless I really want to include you should, um, I reckon you should just type up like a really basic one and mm. just stick it on your website. Like We do not collect any personalized info or personally identifiable information ever. That's your policy. <laughs> it's probably a good idea, and I might actually do that. I don't know how legally binding these things are, but that seems good to me. I have to be honest. When Hunter emailed us, I s- sat there for a second going, oh, maybe I should do something about this. I haven't really thought about it very hard, have I? Uh, but having kind of looked into it, I don't I don't think I'm at you know in any sort of situation where I would be in strife if I didn't include one. I but you know you you are right. I probably should just include one for the for this you know the, making the users feel safe about about themselves and kind of a, being a little bit more transparent, which you know I think is is important. And I try to be so. Therefore, I should you know follow follow that all the way. Mm. More follow up uh, in regards to the episode that we did on blockception. And you know, uh, a little bit into like how to sequence asynchronous tasks and stuff like that. We had a couple of pieces of fo- pieces of follow up. Yeah, it turns out there's a lot of ways to solve this problem, and everyone seems to use a different one. Mm. Well, that's yeah. It's kind of a. I mean, it's obviously something that people run into, and people just you know they they solve it however they feel that they you know works best for them. Um, one of the bits of feedback that we got was from. Simone Farini, that's that's my best attempt at Italian, uh, who suggested something called Sequencer, which is a library uh, that's available both as an Objective-C thing and a Swift thing, depending on which one you prefer to use. It's a really simple, just it's literally one class. And what it does is it puts you in queue blocks and you it sticks them into an array and then it dequeues them all in sequence which means that you can run a bunch of asynchronous tasks and once one is finished, you can move on to the next one and the next one and the next one and the next one and they keep on, uh, they kind of keep on passing down the chain until you you, you are finished, until you do uh, get to the end of that. Um, so the example that you used was the, um, the you know, getting a GitHub repository thing and you'd just, you know, pass in the, you'd first of all get the user and do that. You do the same exact thing. It's just, uh, it's just that, Instead of calling the specific methods, yeah. you are just calling your asynchronous tasks within a you know a queued block um, essentially, which means that you don't you have you will have probably two levels of blocks, but it won't get any 
you know any deeper than that. Yeah, I I like it. Very simple. It only does, from what I can tell, sequential. So as soon as you might want to run one first and then run two at the same time and then run another after both of those have finished, I think you need something more complex, if I understood it correctly. Right, yeah. It's a, it's a very simple, very, very simple uh, version of... Well, I mean, it's kind of like NS Operation Queue, right? It's, um, it's a very simplified version of that. Uh, NS Operation Queue is obviously a built-in thing. It's got a lot of kind of functionality built into it. It allows for things that Sequencer doesn't necessarily do. And in fact, we got some follow-up from Charlie Wu, who suggested NS Operation Queue, which we probably should have mentioned. Yeah, we totally should have. Yeah, because it does things like you can set up dependencies between various different tasks which you can just use an ns operation queue with a block operation and then you can you know make them dependent on each other so you could create that exact situation where you've got one task then two tasks that run sequentially and then you know a final task that relies on both of those you could set that up with just by setting up the dependencies and you can run them concurrently you can run them in serial you can do all of that sort of stuff the downside to it is that ns operation queue is white verbose because you have to set up a whole bunch of stuff and create objects and stick them in the operation queue it's a little bit more complex i think you can on queue blocks though right which is a relatively new feature you used to have to make task objects by memory yeah so you use ns operation queue ns operation queue is the main kind of uh object that you create and so you might create um you might you'll create that and that will kind of control all of the operations uh, which are usually based on NS operation. Mm-hmm. NS operation is just like it's kind of an abstract class that you use to create a task. And so what you do is you uh, actually subclass that and create your tasks around that. But uh, there is a built-in one called NS block operation, which basically you create a block operation with a block. Right. And in fact, that's actually the method that you call to create the operation. Uh, and then you use that to add the operation you add that resulting object into your NS operation queue and then you can set up the dependencies and stuff like that while you're at it. And uh, it basically will, once it gets to that uh, operation, it will, when it runs it, it'll just run whatever's in the block. Okay. And I just looked it up. It's been available since iOS 4. So not exactly new. I just caught it late. (laughs) It's just, it's not, it's not particularly new. It's, I think it's been around ever since blocks have. That would be right. That would make sense. That would make a lot of sense. But that that said, like you can you can and I have created operations that are kind of more customized to what I actually need to do. So rather than kind of sticking everything into blocks all over the place, which is you know, I mean it's it's good, but it also if you're going to use it a lot in the same kind of in in certain situations, or you need kind of more complex code, you can just subclass it and stick your operations. Uh, your operations into the queue and they work roughly the same. So NS operation queue has a lot of kind of flexibility, but it is of course somewhat more verbose. I mean it's it is a Cocoa API after all. You know? Yeah. And that's that's all the that's all the follow up that we have that I know about. Well, I think we have one more piece of follow up. Mm-hmm. So in case you missed it in the last episode, Jake left the show for an impending baby. Yep. And since that show Said baby has arrived, so we should probably say congrats to Jake and his wife, Karen. Yes, that's good news. I'm glad to hear it. And congratulations to Jake, and we miss you. Yes, we definitely miss Jake. Mm-hmm. The, the intro is just not the same without him. It's not. like it just doesn't flow right. I keep having to wake up going, oh, my name comes sooner now. 
<laughs> you just you usually take a nap while while we did. Yeah, I just take know? a quick quick snooze. Yeah, and then oh, there's my name. All right, so that's well, that's all the follow up then. Yeah, so I thought we'd probably open a can of worms here and try and discuss the latest fashionable trend in programming which has actually been around for ages but seems to be making a resurgence, which is functional programming. It's like the 80s. What? The 80s always comes back. It's true. It's true. So functional programming is huge. Um, so we're just going to try and touch on the basics today. And also I think you might find, because I did once I started learning more about it, a lot of the things I was already doing are actually inspired by functional programming. So if you've Let's say in Objective-C, you've used enumerate objects with block. Yep. That's functional programming. Rather than writing a for loop or some sort of loop, putting a function and passing in the array that does something to every object, that is an example of functional programming. So Right. And, I mean, I've used some functional stuff in not even just in Objective-C. I've used it in other languages. And it's so it's not like it's not necessarily a new thing or specific to you know, Swift or even um, or even you know, mobile programming. It's just it's a thing that kind of exists and you can uh, do in almost almost any language, honestly. Yeah. I mean, there's definitely if you want to do it in Objective-C, the language itself wasn't really made for it, but there's a lot of frameworks out there that are quite popular right that add a lot of syntactic sugar i guess and the bits and pieces that you actually use to do functional programming aren't necessarily difficult you can actually write them yourself they don't necessarily all exist in objective c like you said but yeah i mean they're not they're not terribly difficult to actually you know write they're a very simple uh, api it's just the fact that they exist makes it a lot easier to do certain tasks and the way that they work is kind of it's it's almost a I guess it's like a a way of think uh, of thinking about the, pro- the the problem as opposed to just you know a way of writing the code. Yeah, definitely, I agree. I've heard functional programming is a lot like oh, I've forgotten. There used to be a game where you had to hook, you had like lots of pipes, and you had to hook them all together to get the water to flow. I remember to the that other game. side. I don't remember what it's called. Pipe something. Mm. <laughs> the pipe game. Yeah, the- it's kind of like that. Like you have. You make all these different kinds of pipes that do something to the water somehow. They might split it up or they might join two together or something and you put them all together in a line and that's that's how you program. Hmm. So we should probably define it, I've realized. We should probably say what functional programming, I guess, is and aims to do. Okay. So I, I wrote down a definition because if I just tried to do it off my head, I was sure I would get it wrong. So... Functional programming emphasizes calculations using small functions rather than large blocks of code. A function should always produce the same output for a given set of inputs. There is no global state that can change the execution of a function, therefore it is said to be stateless. Right, so a function takes uh, takes a set, set of data and outputs a, a set of data, and if you always give it the same stuff, it will always output the same stuff. Yes, that's the idea. Hmm. If it doesn't, then you've it's not working correctly. So yeah, what okay. you're trying to do is break up whatever you're trying to do, like overall in your app, you're trying to break it up into little, as small as possible components that just take something in and give something out. Right. And that sounds like I could never do that. But once you start putting them all together, you can actually create really complex behavior just from these little little functions that all go together. Right. Learning how to program like with this is, I guess, somewhat like, building stuff with lego like you have a lot of little blocks and you can put them together in a whole bunch of different ways so you can kind of create really complex structures 
uh, out of these, you know, little tiny blocks and they're just, you know, they're just little pieces. Yeah, and it's no different to learning how to program. Most people learn object-oriented. It's no different to that. Like, you learn how to break the problem down into objects. So maybe you've got a car. Yep. And then the car has four wheels and a steering wheel or whatever, and each of those can be represented by an object. Right. And so you re you reuse the wheel object, say. This is a very strange example. But it's the same thing. So you're just breaking it down into reusable components. Yeah, okay. So what if we have an example of how to actually use this in a real-world situation? Because I, I think maybe helping that'll help us get kind of get our heads around it. Imagine that we have we're creating an app for uh, showing you all of the podcasts that are, you know that that are sh- that are you know part of the network. That sounds really weird yep. to say that uh, that mobile couches are part of. So you know, uh, including things like Silver Screen Queens and my old show Jelly and Bean and maybe Topical. Imagine that we have an API endpoint that gives you a list of all the shows and a little bit of information about them. Let, let's take that and turn that into something yeah. as well as we can vocally. Yes. It's always hard to, I think, learn these things just by hearing them right. without actually seeing in front of you. It is hard, but we're going to give it a go anyway. With that in mind, if you would like to see the JSON that we are going to, we'll use for this, I'll, I'll, I'll make sure I stick it into the show notes. Uh, and have it somewhere that you can look at it so that you can kind of under- have an understanding. But we'll we'll do our best to actually explain it. So the first thing to do, we're, we're going to ignore all the networking stuff. So let's just say we have downloaded this JSON file. Which yep. It's just NS data. Yep. We're going to use the built-in CocoJSON parsing, because why wouldn't you? Yep. That will end us up with an array, an NS array of NS dictionaries. Or if you're in Swift, an array of dictionaries. Right. What would you do next, Jelly? So I'd take, I'd, I'd go through and I'd, I'd convert each of the dictionaries into a, a, an actual object then, which had, uh, you know, a set, like a an actual API that I can just kind of access as opposed to, you know, having to work out things. Because, I mean, in Objective C especially, you get sometimes you get NS null back, and sometimes it's nil, and it's just not, it's not ideal. And you probably want them strongly typed, right? Rather than having to. Just right. request fields from your dictionary and hope they're there. Exactly. So, for, want- so exa- for for example, the explicit uh, boolean which comes through in JSON as false will actually show up in a dictionary as being an NS number, which will be a zero, or if it's true, it's a one. Mm. And yeah, that's not ideal because you have to figure out whether or not it's. First of all, you have to figure out whether or not it's actually there. Uh, which means that if you call object for key, it will return nil if it's not even defined. It might be defined, but might not have the correct val- like the correct type. Yep. Yeah, it could it could lead you down all sorts of paths. And then if it is the the correct type, it might be an NS number that's like beyond the bounds of what we could turn into a boolean. Or yeah, there's a whole bunch of different you know issues that could crop up as part of this. So it might be ideal to actually deal with that in an encapsulated place where we only have to deal with it once as opposed to uh, doing it every single time. I agree. So what we'll do is we'll define our model as okay. it's called. So I'm looking at the JSON here. I might just quickly read out what it sort of has in it, seeing as people can't actually see it. Right. So basically we have an array. Yep. And in that array is a whole pile of shows. Yep. So each of those shows is a, a map, a hash map. Is that the right 
JSON word? I call it a dictionary. Yeah, I mean, it'll it'll come through as a dictionary. So I think we can just call it a dictionary. Cool. So they end up being dictionaries. Uh, each one has a key, which is a string. That's yep. kind of like, I guess, the primary ID. Yep. A title, a tagline, a description, yep. two Booleans, one that's archived. Right. So that tells whether or not the show has ended or not. Ah, right. That yep. makes sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, one for explicit, which I'm guessing is has swears in it. Yeah, whether or not it has swears. <laughs> and then we have an array at the end for keywords. Well, if you were searching for this podcast, what should what should come up? I guess a bit of SEO there. Yeah, a little bit of SEO, but also and it, and those keywords are all strings, so it's just an array of strings. Cool, cool. Mm. All right, so I'm going to use on my side. I'm going to use a struct to define this model. And the reason why is I want it to be a value type. Mm -hmm. And we've talked about this a bit before, but value types are awesome, basically. So instead of making an object, which would be passed around by reference, which means it can change, like it can change underneath me. Right. As I'm writing my code, someone else could have a reference to what I'm using and it could change on me without me even knowing, especially if you're on a team of developers. Mm -hmm. Um, So value types fix that. They're kind of like how you consider, well, they are like how you consider ints and booleans and all of that in Objective-C. So when you pass in an int to a function, you know it gets copied. So if you change that in inside that function, it's those changes don't go back up to where right. you called it from, correct? Yeah, and so if you imagine that this is a, if this app that we're creating is something to manage these podcasts, uh, if I was to, um, if I was to use in an interface, you know, change the title of one of these shows in a value type it, it because it's a copy it won't change out from under me uh but if it was an object like uh, you know a class there the, you know it will because it's only by reference if i change it in one place it changes everywhere which is not necessarily the ideal yeah i mean sometimes you want that yeah so i'm not saying oh just everything should be a value type i mean there's definitely cases where you want objects and you want passed by reference mm-hmm. but just especially i find for model model objects you want them to be value types most of the time because you're going to be passing them around and you don't want them to change underneath you. And there could be many of them. But say you've got, for instance, UI screen. There's only one screen. Yeah. So you kind of want that to be passed around by reference. We're not going to go down the the huge hole of functional view controllers because I watched a talk on that and it was crazy. (laughs) But so we're going to keep UI kit in its nice little object-oriented world, and we're just going to do the functional stuff on our model layer. Right. Which I think is a good, in my opinion, is a good policy for writing apps. And it's a good way to kind of get your head around it as well, I think. Probably. Yeah. Because uh, if once you kind of start going down the road of, okay, well, I'm going to rewrite UI kit in value types, you probably should think twice about it because that's a whole i mean if you're a big team or you're facebook then i mean sure go go for it <laughs> if you're facebook that's a good one <laughs> um but if you're if you're uh if you're you know a single developer or on a small team um then you know re- rebuilding ui kit uh, is probably not something that you should really be considering because it's just going to lead you down a path of uh, of headaches when you have to like fix not only problems with your actual app but all of the stuff that you have built custom uh, underneath. We can't all be Lauren Brichter, all right? We, some of us just have yes. to get to the point. So there's a really there's a WWDC talk on value types. There's mm-hmm. a Objective-C.io article on value types. Both well, one's worth a watch, one's worth a read. So we'll chuck those in links in the in the show notes. Yep. 
let's moving on. So now we've defined our nice model. You've got a NS object, I guess. You can be the Objective C guy, and yeah. I'll do mine in Swift. Even though Swift's not necessarily for functional programming, it just makes a lot of it easier. Right. So I've got an NS object class, which you know because I really kind of have to do it that way, and you've got you've got a, a Swift struct. And yes, you totally could create a struct in Objective C and achieve the same thing. But we're just gonna keep them separate for now. To be a hundred percent clear, though, uh, Objective C structs are a lot more limited in what they can do as compared to as compared to Swift. So you can't write methods on a struct the way that you do in Swift. You have to write functions. So as an example, like a common struct that you might uh, come across in UIKit is uh, CGRect. That is a struct. It contains, I think, a couple of other structs, which then contain floats off the top of my head cg float and any of that like there are functions for for those things um as an example you have uh cg rect make is a is what you use to create a a, a cg rect Mm -hmm. you can also use a function on it for things like get width Uh, so it's cg rect get width but these are functions that you call not methods that you call yeah and so they're kind of Global in scope. Yeah, so they're global, and you pass the the rect in, like you pass the CG rect in that you want to deal with, which I guess is kind of similar to functional programming. But at on structs uh, in Swift, it's it's different. You can write your your methods and functions yeah. as uh, as essentially methods on that struct, right? Correct. All right. So now we're we're both pretty set there. We got a nice strongly typed model, mm-hmm. but we're gonna have to convert this JSON string data into our model class, okay. right? It, it doesn't just happen automatically. So what I would probably do is write a write a method on my class that would take the dictionary so that I can do it within the class as opposed to like trying to do it in a its own place. So I'd pass in a dictionary into this method so it might be called something like show with dictionary and then I would pass in mm-hmm. a dictionary. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, and so then that you know gives me back my show that's based on the dictionary. Inside of there, I'd probably... And in fact, I think I have done this. I have done this at least once before, uh, not necessarily with this particular dictionary, but with others. I would go through each item that I knew that I would likely have, test whether or not it actually exists. So test whether it's nil or not, and then test whether it's NS null. Because, okay, with dictionaries from a JSON object, it's crazy in Objective C. <laughs> if it's not defined at all, You'll get back a nil because that's the yes. that's the way that Objective C works uh, as part of object for key. So that's if the key is completely missing. Yeah. So that's if it's missing. But if it's set as null in the in the JSON that I get back, which you know null is actually a value that you can provide in JSON, it will come back as ns null, uh, which is an object that is essentially null. Um, <laughs> So you have to test, for each thing, you have to not only test that it exists, so is it nil, uh, but you also have to test as to whether or not it is set as null, which is a possibility. So you have to test for nil and null, and then I can get, what well, once I know that it, you know it's both there and has a value, I can then get the value. So for each of those things, I would, you know, I would pull, pull that value that way. So the way I would tackle it is I would do the same thing, um, with an initializer that took a dictionary in. Yep. I would use one of Swift's failable initializers. Mm. 
So what that does is it returns an optional of my struct. So we're going to call it show. So it will return an optional show. Okay. Which is really cool, actually. And um, dealing with all that nil null stuff in Swift, what I would do is do an if let on all of the keys. Mm-hmm. I guess if some some of them can be optional. So tagline wouldn't be bothered if that was missing. Description probably wouldn't be bothered. I would default on the Boolean types. And then for key, I would require there was a key and I'd probably require a title as well. I think this is just a Swift thing in general. You're going to have optionals everywhere. And it's really tempting a lot of the time just to make lots of things optional. Yeah. But that really messes with you as you're as you go to write out the rest of your app. Because every time you use one of those, you're going to have to check if it's actually there, which is annoying. And it, mm. it messes up all your code with if lets. And that can get quite ugly because they're all indented. So you, I always like to be careful about what I make optional. And if there's any way around it, I don't make it optional or I get rid of the optionals as soon as possible. So do you suggest that maybe when, when you create the, vet, like the, the, the properties for these things, you default to uh, them being uh, non-optional and then only make them optional when you realize that you need them to be optional as opposed to the other way around? Yes. So if the field is actually optional yep. in your JSON, Yep. Then yeah, that has to be an optional. Yeah. There's no real way around it. But for other ones, I would always prefer that they were just normal types, non-optional. Right. So as an example, the key is always going to be there. So you probably yeah. Would, so if it's the key was missing, I would return nil from my initializer. I would just say I couldn't create an object or struct with this JSON. So that initializer would fail. Right. And the property on your actual object would be non-optional. Yeah, it wouldn't have the question mark after it. Mm. And the cool thing about if lets in general is they can fail based on type or they can fail based on just being nil. So my null nil problem is gone. Because right. if they're if they're NS nulls, they'll come back as the wrong type. So that'll fail. And yep. I'll just replace them with a default value probably. Mm-hmm. And if they are actually nil, well, obviously that will fail too. All right, so now we've both got some way of turning each individual JSON object or each individual JSON dictionary into an object, right? Right. Now we have to do it to all of them. So how would you do that? Uh, so if I, so we get back an array, and the array has, I mean, this one has three dictionaries. Mm-hmm. So I'd have to create an array, and then I would do, so uh, a mutable array, and then four NS dictionary dictionary yep. <laughs> in response. Uh, response array uh i would you know take that take that dictionary stick it into my uh show show with dictionary um method and get back my show the benefit of using show with dictionary as opposed to like you know alloc and knit with dictionary is that objective c doesn't have the uh, the um failable initializers they always return an object um which would mean that i would have to then check all the values to make sure that they're actually there Whereas if I use uh, something like if I use a static method, which I then ref- like I create my object within that uh, based on the dictionary, I can fail. I can return nil. So I could test yep. whether it was nil. And if it isn't nil, I add it. And then I've got my array of, of, of show objects. I like it. All right. So here we go. This is where the, the functional stuff is really going to start, I think. So the first one, the mutable array, that kind of goes against functional programming because functional programming likes immutability as much as possible, hmm. which sounds annoying at first, but once you get into the habit of using let instead of var, it's awesome. And you then know it's not going to change on you, which again is great. <laughs> it makes things so much easier, especially because the compiler will tell you when you're trying to change it. It will yeah. say, no, you can't do that. You 
you constant it. You put a let in front of it. Yeah. Bad. And the second thing I'm going to do is use one of these fancy functions that sort of come with the Swift standard library, and this one's called map. And this is one of the basics. I guess when people start to learn functional programming, there's three basics that everyone starts with, which is map, filter, and reduce. So we're going to cover map first. What map does is you run it on an array. It goes to every object in that array, and you can do something with it, basically. So for every object in an array, I'm going to do something with it. And it's most of the time used to transform the values into something else. Okay. So in our case, what we're going to do is we're going to take our array of dictionaries, mm-hmm. and we're going to map it. And on each one, we're going to run that failable initializer we created before. And so what map will return is an array of show optionals, which is really cool. There's one line, response.map. And then inside the map, we say return show, show with dictionary or whatever we called it. So then if you've, once you've actually got your array of shows, then you're going to have some, like if you have, uh, if you're returning an optional, you're going to have some that are not actually like valid values. That's correct. If, if we were to create like a, let's imagine that we're creating a table view, like table view that lists all of our shows you would have some shows that like show up as blank rows. That's not ideal. Correct. So we want to get rid of these optionals, right? They're they're annoying. Optionals are annoying. We'd rather deal with it sooner rather than later. So I guess you could leave them in there. And then in your table view, in your number of rows and section method, you would have to work out how many in the array that weren't actually nil. Yeah, that doesn't sound fun. It would be an annoying step. So in Swift 2, this is really easy. Mm -hmm. You can use a function called flat map. In general, what FlatMap does is it takes an array of arrays and it flattens them out into one array. So imagine you've got an array of arrays, all of ints. The first one is one, two, three. The next array is four, five, six. And you just want a single array that's one, two, three, four, five, six. That's FlatMap. That's exactly what FlatMap does. Okay, so it creates it creates a flat array uh, as opposed to like a multidimensional array? Is that Yeah, the- and so you're probably thinking like a lot of people... How does that work for an array of optionals? The array is just a single array already. Yeah. And I think that is a confusing part about why they decided to call it flat map. Because a lot of a lot of people had actually made this function before Swift 2. Because it's mm. really handy to have around to take an array of optionals and just return an array of only the ones that weren't nil. So what flat map actually does, I guess, you can think of optionals as being single element arrays. Either they've got an element uh, or they okay. don't have an element, right? right? So they could be an array that's empty, but they could also be an array that has a value. Yes, and I think that's why they have decided to call it flat map. It kind of goes through all those optionals and unboxes them because that's what optionals are. They're just a box. Yep. You look inside the box and go, oh, there's an object in here, or oh, it's empty. Right, and that makes sense. Now that you explain it like that, it makes sense. <laughs> yeah, I still think it's a little weird, but... It, it totally works, and it's, it's really easy to use in Swift 2. But say you're not in Swift 2, or just say you want to use more functions just to learn. Yep. We can use filter, right? Right. So filter, I mean, it's kind of self-explanatory. A filter you pass in, or you pass in a closure, that returns a Boolean. And that Boolean is true if you want to include that object, and false if you don't. So it's going to run that condition on each object in your array. Yep. And if it returns true, we'll put it in the new array, and if it returns false, we'll throw it away. So I could technically do that with... Objective C as well. Objective C has filtered array with predicate 
and then you create a yep. predicate that takes a block, and then that in that block you can do the same thing where you get uh, you get the object and you return either true or false depending on what whether you want the object in there or not. The downside is there's an objective C you can't stick nil in an array, so I couldn't I couldn't use it in the first place. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> but so, you're right. So yeah. and a, like Objective C over the years has got a few of these functional methods and there's yep. frameworks galore hmm. that add them. Um anyway. So what we can do, we can filter for value is not nil. The trick though is filter always returns an array of the same type as what you had before. So now we okay. still have an array of optional shows. We know they're all non-nil though, but the yep. compiler doesn't. Yeah. Compiler doesn't know that. It's still going to say they're optional, you have to check. So there's one more step we have to do. We need to use map again because we want to convert from optional type to non-optional type, right? Right. And then in inside of the the closure that we use on map, we would explicitly unwrap, force unwrap the uh, the optional. That's right. Yeah. Which is kind of, it's not the best. Like a lot of people are very strict on the use of that exclamation mark. Yep. It's it's meant for cases just like this one where you, you know for sure that it's it's going to unwrap. Yeah, you've already done the work of checking to make sure that the optional is actually there. So you're doing, you know, you, you, you all you need to do is just get it out of the optional. Mm. Yeah, so you have to use it in this case in Swift 1.2. But in Swift 2, it's gone. You don't have to use that ugly exclamation mark anymore. You can just use flat map. Flat map. Mm. Yeah, so there you go. Now we have our array of perfectly constructed non-optional shows passed from our JSON. And uh, your version of that is slightly more, well, slightly less uh, verbose than mine is, whereas mine takes up like a couple of lines of code. Yours could theoretically be one line. Yeah, it's a one-liner, especially if you can use flat map. Yeah. I mean, I guess technically we we stuck a function in another file to enable us to write it in one line, but we both had to do that, right? So in in our parsing code, it is just the single line. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean that, and that's a thing. Like the 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 code, uh, your code should be kind of uh, singled out. I mean, if we got this JSON, we might have this JSON come from a like from a server somewhere, but we could also be getting it uh, from you know something that the user like a file that the user opens or something. Um, so we could have multiple ways of getting this JSON in, and then so we would want to be able to uh, encapsulate that you know that functionality as best we can to make sure that we're reusing stuff um so having an initializer or a uh a method on the on the actual class itself that deals with opening up that json and you know finding the values that it it knows should be there uh kind of makes sense to put it in the object to put it in the class or the struct uh, as opposed to like you know sticking it in where you would have it open up the file and or open up the like you you're making it more difficult for yourself if you have it in multiple places. And I think you've touched on something there in that thinking functionally also makes your code really testable. Yeah. So if we were writing a test to make sure this works, we don't want to hit the server every time because right. then our test is going to run really slow. We want tests to run as fast as possible so we use them as much as possible. So you could construct a dictionary from code if you wanted to or you could load a file from the from the bundle and it would right. just work. Right. That's the cool thing about it. Yeah, and I mean the thing is the thing is is that 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 initializer and all that uh, that you know method that you're writing on the class that is kind of thinking functionally, I guess, because you're creating what is essentially a function uh, to you know create an object 
based on the object that you're passing in, which is exactly what a fun what yeah, and it's always going to return the same yeah. thing. Yeah, right. Yeah, so mm. pretty like cool. It. So there's one more function that I mentioned before that we haven't actually used in our parsing example. So let's just say in our show object we had an array of keywords, right? Mm-hmm. And let's say in our app in our view we just want to we don't want to make another table view inside a table view or something complex like that. We just want to show it as a single string. Right. So we have an array of strings and we want one string that kind of combines them all, I guess. Just in like a comma-separated string or something. Yeah. Mm. So that that function exists too. Nicely pre-made in the standard library. It's called reduce. So reduce takes an array and applies some function to it to return a single result. So a really common one is you can use it on numbers. So say you want to find the max value or the sum or the average, you can do that with reduce. So it takes every single object and it has a value that's kind of like constantly being updated as you go. Yep. And it just returns one value. Right. So in Objective-C, uh, I would have to create an NS string, probably a mutable NS string because it's sli- slightly uh, less verbose once you get into the um, into the actual bits. And I would create basically an empty string and iterate over the array probably using my my for in syntax and in each so for each value i would append that value to the string and then afterwards i would check to see whether or not it's a like if it's the last value in that string so i'd probably have to use enumerate with block because that's really the only way that you can get the index and the value really easily Mm -hmm. so once i got to the last one by testing the index against the count of how many objects are actually in the array i would uh, add a comma after each one so that the on the last one i can not include a comma because you don't want that yeah mm. that no last comma thing it just comes up everywhere i don't but, know it's just such a common problem and there's so many solutions to not putting a comma on the last one mm-hmm. but i saw every single one is verbose so even in the functional way so the way reduce works is we pass in an initial value and a closure that in that closure gets passed in the current whatever our value is up to, and then we can do something to it and return it, basically. So to reduce an array of strings yep. into a single string, what we're going to do is pass in an empty string, Yep. and then in our closure, we're just going to say, take the current value and append the word and a comma. And you're right, at the end, we're going to have a string with an extra comma on the end, which is mm. annoying, but there's another function for that. We can trim it, so we can just yeah. trim off the last character. So I, I just realized that NSString actually has a, a method on it called um, called uh, string, or rather, maybe it's the NSArray that has it, where you can create a string from components by, uh, with, with a separator string. So you can pass in an array and a like a string that you want to use as a separator, which might be a comma and then a space, right. and then it will like it'll mash it all down into one. Uh, one string so that you have a comma separated that's string. That's cool. I've never used I've never used that function. I bet it's existed since like iOS negative one and I just didn't know about it. I've only ever used it a couple of times because it's not I mean the thing is is that nine times out of ten you're probably not going to be doing dealing with arrays of strings like uh, on a regular basis. That's not usually what you're dealing with. Mm. Usually you have other types of objects. Uh, in the case of strings like yeah you want to kind of mash them all down into one thing. It's really verbose. Like the the name of the method is ridiculously verbose, but I mean it it does what it says in the tin. 
Um, <laughs> it you know creates a single string that's separated by the actual like the character that you pass in. I think uh, the the time that most recent time that I've used it is in uh, parsing uh, like a domain type thing, like a you know a dot separated set of strings um, to find mm-hmm. like a key path, for example, a, a key path. Um, so you can you know if you separate every, all the strings, uh, the the string using the dot as the you know the separator, it will create an ar- array of strings, and then you can join it back together as needed uh, using this using this value in a okay and a dot. yeah mm. very good yeah and then I might even take it I might even take it one step further after I've done that and I would uh, instead of and the last comma I would look for the last comma and I would replace it with a an and just to be tricky tricky. Whoa, you're crazy. So that's pretty much it. Mm. That was the basic introduction to functional programming, which I don't know if it made sense coming from a podcast, but I hope you got some value out of it. I feel like it made a bit of sense. I, I think we, we ex- I, I think it was explained. I mean, we. Mm. I think the thing is, not all of these functions exist in Objective C, but they are fairly basic kind of underlying things. You could technically write some of them yourself like i said before and there are obviously libraries that make kind of make this a little bit easier for you but it's kind of a good way of thinking of th- about things and you're probably already doing a little bit of it yourself like already even if you're not you know thinking in map and reduce because i mean like we said before the initializer that we use like that's kind of thinking functionally and it does make things a lot easier to test and that sort of thing yeah i like it i've just remembered We've talked about it before, but there's a talk from NS Camp this year, and the videos are out now, that combines the best of both worlds. That is a great talk. Mm, I remember talk, I remember seeing that. I don't necessarily think I've watched it. I have watched a bunch of those videos from NS, uh, NS Conf, not NS Camp. Oh, uh, sorry, yeah. Mm, hey, NS speaking, Camp of NS Camp, mm. speaking of NS Camp, that's happening again. Yeah, have we already is. talked about that? We haven't mentioned it. So, uh, for those of you who are in Australia, and probably those of you who are on the east coast of Australia, probably. I mean, if you live in Perth, you probably could make it if you wanted to. That you, I mean, if you were out, out out of Australia as well, you could probably make it if you wanted to. But I will admit, I'm not going because I'm. It would be a long way to go. It would from be a long London. way to travel. Hmm. Uh, NS Camp is something that we did an episode at a long a couple of years ago now. I think it was. Hmm. And it was uh, it, it was a really cool weekend. It's essentially one of those weekends where you uh, you you know uh, go and stay somewhere for a weekend. It is essentially camping. You could probably stay in a tent if you really want to. You can. Yeah. Um. I don't think I will ever stay in a tent unless I am Camping's forced to do fun, so. Man. No, no, I'm not that kind of guy. Uh, <laughs> but it is on again. It's in Sydney this this uh, year. I forget the date exactly. Um. But you can find all the details for it on the website. I think that's still just slightly, just slightly having early bird tickets, so you might actually get in slightly cheap if you jump on it straight away. But yeah, you know, these these things are kind of great. Um, so you should check it out. We'll throw the link to the website in the show notes. And um, but yeah, the conference the conference videos. We'll also throw the uh, NSConf video link in the show notes. Cool. Speaking of show notes, you can find them on the internet. Mm. They will be on our website at mobilecouch.co forward slash 65. Now, if you would like to get in touch with us and send us follow-up, feedback, whatever you would like, you can do that as well. Our uh, email address is hello at mobilecouch.co. 
Uh, or you can jump on the website again, mobilecouch.co forward slash contact, and that sends us an email as well, depending on which one you want to do. Now, if you'd like to get in touch with us individually, you can do that as well. Ben is Ben Trengrove. That is B-E-N-T-R-E-N-G-R-O-V-E. And I am Jelly Bean Soup. And if you want to send Jake a congratulatory remark, you can do that as well. He is Jay McMullen. That is J-M-A-C-M-U-L-L-I-N. That is probably the last time I'll ever spell that out, which is sad. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, everybody, for listening. Thank you again to our patrons. You are amazing. And uh, you make the show, you make it feasible for us to keep doing this every fortnight. It's amazing. Uh, we look forward to talking to you again in two more weeks' time. Until then, goodbye. Bye. <laughs>